Welcome to the May Citizens Climate Lobby call. My name is Mark Reynolds. I'm a member of the Citizens Climate Lobby board and I'll be hosting today's call. What I'll be doing uh, over the course of the day first is we'll have our two guests from American Forests. Uh, American Forests, really important organization, one nation under trees. Healthy forests are our pathway to slowing climate change and advancing social equity. Such a beautiful statement, so we're lucky to have them. Uh, after we hear from our guests today, uh, we're gonna be going over what we're inviting you to do this month, uh, followed by some of the interesting things that are happening both domestically and with our international work. And then the last thing I wanna to do today is talk a little bit about the June conference. Uh, some of you will be attending live, some of you will be attending virtually. There are some really important features that I wanna to point to. I think there's some particularly important talks this round, so I wanted to take some time and uh, focus on that. Um, one of the things I like to do is uh, tell our guests a little bit about the people they're speaking to. And there's a lot of things that I'll say, but I'll just start with that these people are very active. So I just wanna to touch on a few of the things that they did this month. The first one actually stretches a little bit more uh, than a month. We started this action when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. We created a commitment to have 40,000 people contact their members of Congress and the president. And to date, 42,241 people have made contact uh, with their member of Congress and the president. We also made a commitment to do 500 events. That would be a combination of, of outreach events, things like tabling, presentations, et cetera. And so far, 897 events have happened. And really remarkably, for an organization that has not been able to table for two years, 256 tabling events. Uh, and so that's been great to be out there in the field again. There are also three outreach tours, one in Tennessee and Kentucky, one in Mississippi, one in New Mexico, Arizona, and Nevada. Uh, and that ended up with a total of 76 outreach events that happened in the month of April also. In addition to that, uh, we, our volunteers got 97 op-eds published and 200 letters to the editor. Regarding our op-eds, uh, over 80% of the op-eds that we submit get published by newspapers, and particularly in the month of April when so many people are competing for space during uh, Earth Month. Uh, to have over 90% is really remarkable. And for everybody who submitted, thank you. And a particular shout out to Charlotte Ward and our comms department for giving us such great uh, material to work with. So American Forest is the oldest nonprofit conservation group uh, in the United States. Um, and we're really lucky to have two guests today. We have Jad Daly, who's the president and CEO, and Joel, Joel Panel, who's the vice president of urban forestry. So gentlemen, welcome. Uh, so great to have you. And uh, hopefully there'll be some time for some Q&A after your opening statement. And we'll be monitoring that so you don't have to keep an eye out for those questions. We'll make sure that we keep an eye out for them. Mark, thanks so much. It's, it's such a joy to be with all of you today. Thank you so much for uh, uh, the work that you do. Uh, you, it's incredibly inspiring to watch the video. And uh, I've had a front row seat as uh, a brother-in-law to Sam Daly Harris to watch the growth of Citizens Climate Lobby over the years. And so uh, know about the kinds of mind-blowing statistics that Mark just shared about the effectiveness that you all have uh, and the passion that you bring to this work that you're here on a Saturday uh, afternoon, giving you your time to, to act on climate change. So thank you for what you do. We're inspired by you and we're incredibly grateful, uh, Joel and myself, to have a, a little bit of time with you today uh, to talk about uh, what we think is the profound role uh, that uh, trees and forests uh, can play uh, in advancing uh, climate action and climate justice. Uh, just a quick check. Can everyone see my screen now? Fantastic. Yes. 
Okay, so what we want to do is uh, we want to do the movie trailer or not the movie. We, we'd like to talk for like an hour and 25 minutes about all these things, but we want to give you just enough that hopefully we can have a second date. So, um, you know, uh, what we want to try to do is kind of take you over the treetops of the key issues here on the intersection of forest with climate action uh, and climate justice and, and including some of the policy opportunities um, and then see what that brings out in the question and answer. And hopefully that sets up ways that we can work together uh, going forward. Uh, so the first thing is, I think you kind of got to know who you're dealing with here. And so I just want to speak personally. What, why am I here? Why, why did I come to American Forests uh, five years ago to pivot the nation's oldest uh, forest conservation organization, uh, you know, 147 years uh, young at this point, um, to, to wholly focus on uh, climate change and social equity and, and the intersection of the two? Um, and, you know, my journey started with reading The End of Nature um, right when it came out, actually more than 30 years ago. I went out and sold my car. Uh, I made some big decisions in my life that, that I was going to live climate action every day um, and uh, nothing's changed. I've, I've been on it uh, throughout the different twists and turns in my career. And my other great inspiration is that woman you see there on the right. That's the Reverend Patty Daly, 85 years young, and she's still rocking it, um, uh, working in the most socially disadvantaged places she can find um, as a reverend um, and, and ministering to the people who need her the most. Um, and that, that for me has just uh, created this deep commitment to social uh, and racial equity and justice as a foundation um, for my life. Um, and so uh, American Forests, I can, I can promise you, this is not an organization that cares about trees and suddenly latched on to climate change and social equity. We're not going to be happy if we succeed on something with forests and it doesn't end up saving our climate um, and delivering real change in social and racial equity and justice uh, in this country. And that, that's a team that you look at there. Four, we've grown fourfold in about four years uh, is filled with people who just wake up every single day um, and they're just like you. They, they live and die doing everything they possibly can on, on these issues um, and, and the way that they come together. Um, and so just know that uh, our metrics for success are the same as your metrics for success. Um, and, and look, you know, the, the great thing about it is uh, we don't have to make uh, trees and forests a climate change solution. They actually already are. Um, here in the United States, um, our forests and forest products, which, by the way, store carbon um, and also have other greenhouse gas benefits because they're actually more energy efficient to manufacture than materials like uh, uh, cement and, and steel, um, together uh, provide a net carbon sink of about 16% of our carbon dioxide emissions from burning fossil fuels. So a really important uh, climate change benefit that we're already getting uh, from our trees and forests uh, and forest products uh, here in the United States. That's, but that's a starting point. And the, the science tells us that if we don't do anything, that's actually going to start going down uh, quite precipitously, uh, thanks to things like wildfire and, and actually just the impact of climate change on forests is one of the biggest reasons why that will start that climate benefit will start to erode um, if we don't uh, do something. So part of what we have to do is keep our forests healthy and resilient uh, in the face of climate change. We call that carbon defense. Uh, but we can also expand our forest ability to, to take in carbon, naturally take in carbon dioxide, sequester it is the, the actual term of art. Um, and so I wanna talk about just a couple of examples of what this carbon offense and carbon defense, if you will, looks like um, to, to see if we can go from that 16% and at least hold the line, but maybe make it a lot more. And there's some science that suggests that we could potentially as much as double uh, or nearly double uh, that climate change benefit um, that we're getting from our, our trees and forests uh, right now. So here's a great example of the carbon offense side. And look, there's, there's some pretty simple science at work. That one tree that you see there on the left, we know from our work with the US Forest Service, we've done the analysis, the average tree in the United States 
over its lifetime, that's going to sequester about 0.62 of a ton uh, of, of carbon. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, the carbon dioxide, excuse me. So it's, a you know, each one of these trees, each tree we add to the landscape, uh, is an, essentially an additional carbon removal uh, device. Now to, to expand on that, it can't just be more trees, it has to be the right kinds of trees in the ecologically appropriate places. Um, but we've done that analysis, this reforestation hub that you see here on the right. Uh, and this is a tool you can go out and check it out yourself. It goes county by county across the entire United States. And this is a tool we built with the Nature Conservancy uh, that shows exactly where we can add trees, where we should add trees um, to increase this natural carbon capture. And it actually quantifies for you how much additional carbon capture we'll get in each of these different locations and each of these different types of adding trees to landscape, whether it's urban forests or agroforestry, adding trees to farms and ranches, or whether we're talking about, you know, for example, reforesting burned over uh, landscapes. We mapped all of it. Um, and so you can go in there and explore that and, and talk to your members of Congress about opportunities to bring more trees onto the landscape. And, and if you add it all together, by our analysis, we can increase carbon capture in our forests by more than 40% just by maximizing this more trees opportunity. Well, what about this carbon defense? And, and as I, I alluded to earlier, you know, our forests are under immense stress from climate change. And wildfire is the, the one that you probably see uh, are most aware of. But actually, a lot of times wildfire follows on other ways in which climate change is impacting our forests, like tree mortality. I mean, California, more than 100, uh, uh, you know, uh, 50 million trees have died in just the last decade alone, um, driven by climate stresses, just as a, for example. Um, and so there are all sorts of ways in which uh, climate change is essentially undermining forest health. And then those unhealthy forests are more prone uh, to burn. So counterintuitive though it might be, there are some places where we actually need to subtract more trees from the landscape, ideally turning them into forest products where appropriate, we could store that carbon that we've taken off the landscape. Um, but by actually having fewer trees, in some cases, we're gonna get a more stable carbon sink over the long term, and the net gain for our climate can be very, very substantial. We actually have some Western states that have tipped to a net a source of carbon from their forest because they're not doing this kind of work to prevent uh, mortality in the forest and to prevent wildfire. So I wanna shift now to the intersection of, of trees and climate and ju climate justice, um, because we don't just need trees to help us slow climate change, but we need trees to protect us from climate change. And, and that starts with protecting us from the uh, incredible uh, threat of extreme heat uh, in our cities. Uh, and uh, it, this map that you see here, or the picture that you see here on the left and the map, and map you see here on the right, uh, reveals a fundamental reality in our cities, which is that a map of trees is also a map of income and a map of race in ways that transcend income. And that has life or death implications in our cities. Look, already 12,000 people per year die from extreme heat uh, in the United States alone. That's the number one uh, loss of life uh, from extreme weather, which a lot of people don't know that. That number is predicted to get to 100,000 by the end of the century. And we know that from great research from Duke University. And those deaths are going to be concentrated in neighborhoods that lack tree cover, uh, where people don't have air conditioning to cool their homes. Uh, they might not have uh, you know, the best uh, health care plans or might have pre-existing health conditions. Um, and so lower income uh, communities, uh, communities of color that already face uh, different kinds of uh, barriers and dis uh, disinvestment. Um, are the ones that are at the greatest risk. And what we know from a, a tool we created called Tree Equity Score is that it is systemic across the country. 
that a map of trees is a map of income uh, and a map of race and trade ways of transcending income. And, and in fact, just you know, to make the point, uh, uh, majority communities of color have 33% less tree canopy on average, regardless of income uh, in the United States. So you can check this out for yourself. Don't, don't take my word for it. Uh, tree equity score is as easy to use as your smartphone. Uh, you can jump on there right now, a permission to multitask. Uh, and just enter your town. And it, what Tree Equity Score lets you do is see uh, citywide uh, some of these tree inequities in your community. Uh, it lets you actually go neighborhood by neighborhood and see exactly where you have tree inequities and shows you both where there's lacking tree cover, but also things like the percentage uh, of, of people of color, uh, uh, age distribution, health status, actual urban heat island in those communities, as well as economic indicators. Uh, so we can see where uh, the lack of trees is having the greatest impact on people's vulnerability to climate change. And then the same tool actually lets you run a scenario to see, well, hey, if I added this many more trees to my community, if I wanted every tree uh, neighborhood in my community to have equitable tree cover, what would the benefits be? Uh, how much would we do in terms of cleaning the air and better protecting people from extreme heat and those kinds of things? So we hope this is a powerful tool for you uh, to become an advocate uh, for tree equity as a way um, to uh, more equitably protect people uh, in our cities from climate change. But the good news is that this is a, 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 a climate justice solution that's also actually a climate action solution. We don't have to choose that the same action is going to both protect people from climate change more equitably, but also it's going to help slow climate change. And urban trees not only are a surprisingly big part of the carbon capture in trees and forests in the United States, 130 million metric tons of CO2 per year, which is almost 20% of the carbon capture in America's trees and forests is actually happening in our cities and towns. Um, but those same trees also save a whole lot of energy for heating and cooling. Uh, and so there's kind of another hidden uh, greenhouse gas savings and financial savings uh, in these same trees. And then lastly, you know, the, uh, the great thing about this work of tree equity, as we all understand that the underlying inequities uh, in our cities are so often economic. Uh, and so we have an incredible opportunity in planting more trees in those neighborhoods that need them the most, that are caring for trees in those neighborhoods that are more frequently losing them. Uh, to create jobs in the process. And by our research, 25.7 jobs for every million dollars that we invest in creating tree equity in our cities. And so in that sense, we can create climate action, climate justice, and green jobs in one fell swoop. And that's why our organization is all in on asking for uh, unprecedented public and private investment uh, in this fantastic multi-benefit uh, climate change uh, solution. So with that said, let me turn it over to my colleague, uh, Joel Pinnell, who will speak about some of the fantastic bipartisan policy opportunities and momentum uh, to invest in those kinds of, uh, uh, of climate opportunities. So no, I, I just said thank you, Jed, and thank you uh, to Citizens Climate Lobby for having us. Uh, it's a rare occasion where I'm, I'm happy to be joining my boss on a Saturday afternoon, um, just because this topic is so important and, you know, just I think you just saw a little glimpse of the passion that, that Jad has for this issue and, and leading, just proud to work for an organization that's uh, leading um, on these issues in a substantial way. And so I want to talk a little bit about some recent, recent legislative victories as well as some opportunities to build further upon that to really realize the full benefits of trees as a natural climate solution. Um, and as I do that, I do wanna underscore sort of two really important points. So number one, is that trees are a proven bipartisan climate solution. I know that I'm preaching to the choir and you all know that, but um, you know, just to any narratives that are out there about uh, this being a partisan issue just are simply untrue. We can have healthy debates about scale of investment and how to pay for things, but there is no debate 
on uh, trees and forests as a healthy climate solution for uh, every community in the country, rural, urban, uh, suburban, and everywhere in between. And as evidence of that, you know, we have the uh, Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which is now the law of the land. And so there were several significant victories. Um, the Replant Act that I'll talk a little bit more uh, detail, talk about in a little bit more detail a little bit later. Um, but we know that we have um, uh, Senator Manchin as the chair of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, who's working on bipartisan legislation right now. Uh, we have the ARCS Act. We have the Growing Climate Solutions Act that I know uh, you all have been very involved with. And so we have examples of, of these bipartisan solutions. On the urban forestry side, there's also there's about a dozen bills right now that would scale up federal investment in urban community forestry. Right now, we have one federal program at the Forest Service dedicated to that. Um, but these bills would do that through various agencies, um, HUD, DOT, Department of Energy, and others. And uh, three of those bills are actually very bipartisan. Two are, are led currently by Republicans that include language for prioritizing funding in areas uh, that are typically underserved, as well as areas of low tree or environmental equity. So, so tree equity, you're hearing from me, tree equity is a, is a bipartisan climate solution. Uh, next slide, please. And so when I, the second point I wanted to make was that tree equity is, is environmental justice. And so you know, I know some people have asked, well, what's the connection between tree equity and environmental climate justice? Uh, the connection is that tree equity is environmental justice. And the current administration has you know, stated uh, priorities on climate, health, and equity. And tree equity, again, just sits perfectly at the intersection of all these issues. And so there's uh, lots of opportunities that we are currently working on to advance tree equity um, at federal agencies now to the Justice 40 Initiative, the Interagency Working Group on Extreme Heat that we co-developed a uh, guide that the Forest Service released on using tree cover to com combat urban heat islands. Um, this, this was part of that announcement on the Interagency Working Group. And then just getting agencies, again, beyond the USDA and the Forest Service, really getting them uh, skin in the game in terms of how they're using trees as a natural climate solution. Uh, next slide, please. And so one of the ways that we're doing that is through um, advocating for the, the Healthy Streets Program. So this is a program that was newly authorized in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. It uh, was not funded, uh, but it's authorized at $100 million annually for grants to communities to um, really invest in tree, their tree canopy, tree assessments, and, and combining that with cool paving, pavement strategies to really cool cities that are suffering the most from, from climate change. Uh, Jad and many of my colleagues were in Phoenix about two weeks ago. Um, Phoenix is one of the is the first major U.S. city to really publicly commit to tree equity. They've got an amazing, cool corridor program where, again, when Jad and my colleagues were out there a couple of weeks ago, they they were uh, planting trees uh, in a heavily Latino, heavily uh, low income community that's literally you know baking in the sun, one of the one of the hottest cities in the world, uh, and has realized that trees are just a more effective climate solution than any any of the other things that they can do. Um, and so again, we really would love your support on, on uh, getting that Healthy Streets program funded. And there's you know, a couple of opportunities to do that through the appropriations process this year, and we'll be, we'll be staying with that. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and so one of the bipartisan bills that is out there is the Trees Act. It's bipartisan, it's bicameral. It would, uh, it's, it's based on a very popular program in Sacramento. Um, where the utility company there is, is providing free uh, shade trees to 
uh, private homeowners and others to, to really address cooling and utility cost issues. Um, and so this is a bill that we would love to see um, get a little bit more traction and, and move through whatever legislative vehicle presents itself. Again, it's bipartisan and bicameral uh, with um, Senator Booker and Senators Capito leading on the Senate side and Representative Matsui, Representative McKinley and others leading on the House side. Um, next slide, please. And you know, I know I'm jumping back and forth a little bit, but some, one of the big legislative victories we had was in the, the Replant Act in the infrastructure bill. Um, it created uh, $2.5 billion for post-fire post restoration. We actually believe that number is going to be significantly higher in terms of uh, dollar value um, once everything is said and done. And so that, again, was just a really big uh, win for us or went for, I'm sorry, for, for the forestry community at large, there was more to do there. Um, so it provides a lot of money to the national forest system. It provides a little bit of money to the Department of Interior who manages um, many of, many of our, our public forests as well. And so there's a lot more to do there to make sure that that money gets to states, tribes, landowners, and others so that we can, again, um, appropriate the funding in the right way to realize the full benefit of investments in, in climate smart forestry. Um, and so we're really... Uh, excited also to see things like uh, the Trillion Trees Act or the Forestry Act that again address these issues in a really critical and, and bipartisan way. Uh, next slide, please. And so those again are just a few of the uh, legislative vehicles that really um, emphasize the federal government partnering with private landowners and providing those financial incentive incentives um, to actualize climate smart forestry. And again, just very grateful for what's already been done. We want to see if we can get some of these things over the finish line. So very interested in working with um, Citizens Climate Lobby on things like the Growing Climate Solutions Act that I know you all were instrumental in helping get passed uh, very quickly in the Senate. And so hoping to get that across the finish line in the House and, and onto the president's desk. And um, that's just some of the things that we're looking at as ways to do that. And I think, again, because this is, is, there's no debate that this is a bipartisan climate solution. There's no debate about the benefits that uh, trees and forests bring to all communities of all sizes. And it, there's no uh, debate about the climate, health, and economic benefits, um, again, that trees bring to all communities. And so we really are looking forward to working with everyone in a collaborative way um, to come up with those effective solutions for the country that are good policy. And so regardless of the politics or the process by which we get there, um, there's universal agreement that this is good policy. In most cases, it's non-regulatory policy that really, again, speaks to um, climate action that we can take now to have immediate benefits and then also benefits for future generations. And so with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Jed um, and let you wrap it up. Yeah, and I'll just quick closing comment. I'm sorry we went a little longer than we had intended, but we get excited. I'm sorry, because it's so fun to share this with you all. And we know how passionate you are about the same issues. And so I'll leave it at this. Uh, your opening nailed it. It's about climate hope. Uh, you know, climate despair is you know, not getting us anywhere. Uh, we need hope. And the, one of the things that we think is really powerful about this work is everyone can participate. We've got governments to Girl Scouts. The Girl Scouts of the USA, literally, when they try to figure out what they want to do on climate change, created the Girl Scout Tree Promise, which we're partnering with them on, to plant 5 million trees in the next five years to act on climate change, because it was something that they could actively participate in directly on the ground. And so we think that this movement uh, from cities to wilderness offers chances for people to touch in and be part of the solution and get climate hope and get momentum and let that feed into the broader climate movement and all the things 
that we need to do. So we'll stop there and uh, just uh, can't wait to um, uh, get your, any of your thoughts and questions. And again, really hope that we can keep this collaboration going forward and, and support each other's work in, in the greatest ways possible. Yeah, so do we. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. Flannery, what, uh, what kind of questions are you fielding so far? All right. So um, our top upvoted question is from Kate. They're asking um, if you could comment on um, the growing population and the need to use farmland to grow food. Um, so in, just in general, how do you think about uh, land use questions and the need to, uh, to also plant trees? Well, it's a fantastic question. Um, and so I'm going to give a, a short answer and I'd love to follow up with interested folks on this. The good news is there, there are lots and lots of the uh, uh, tree uh, opportunities on agricultural lands that actually don't reduce agricultural outputs, and in some cases even enhance them. Um, things like planting trees in the rows between crops, um, a pasture where you're adding trees onto ranch lands, which actually creates healthier ranch lands for the, uh, the animals that are grazing there and those kinds of things. And so uh, we're really focused on those win-win opportunities where we can actually have better agriculture and we can also have carbon positive farming by adding trees into the landscape. That's great. Um, okay, we had a couple of questions about uh, maintaining trees after they're planted. Um, yeah. Is that something that American Forest has programs around? 110%. Uh, you know, so Joel mentioned, let me start with the urban side. Uh, Joel mentioned um, this uh, forestry guide that we created with the U.S. Forest Service for not just uh, managing our urban forests better than ever, but to do it uh, with an understanding of the climate stresses um, on our forests and how to maximize their resilience over the long term and all the benefits we need them to provide for climate justice, for public health, um, and those kinds of things. So we're, we're really intent on that. And so with partner cities like Phoenix, for example, um, you know, we're going very, very deep on getting that information and tools out to all the 50 plus partner organizations, grassroots groups, all the way to the city agencies that are working together on it. So we're all using those exceptional forestry principles. And that's really the kind of shorthand for how we do it in every single place we're working, whether it's the campfire burn scar in California, where we're partnering with big federal agencies to restore that, or whether it's doing urban forestry for tree equity. We're all, we like to think of ourselves as woodwonks, we're into the geeky details of forestry, and we, we know we need to be if we're going to get the lasting uh, outcomes that we're seeking from this investment that we're making in our trees and forests. And Jet, if I could just add to that, um, we were limited on time, so we really, we could spend a whole day talking to you as well about our Career Pathways program, but we know that the uh, urban forestry uh, sector is going to be growing uh, by 10,000 or more jobs just in the, in the next several years. And we really designed our career pathway program so that we're creating economic opportunities in the very communities that have um, been hit first and worst uh, by climate change. And so the, that important work of making sure that those trees are maintained, established, and that they're going to grow into healthy urban canopy is something that we're really focused on very intentionally about creating jobs, workforce development opportunities, pre-employment um, curriculum, wraparound services for people who have um, sort of systemic barriers to employment, working to do all of that so that we are addressing both that issue as well as the economic equity issues at the same time. Wonderful. Well, you guys have come to the right place. The woodwonks have found the climate nerds. On this <laughs> <laughs> um, Mark, do we have time for one more question? We do. We do, Flannery. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, we've had a few questions about 
uh, wildfires in the West. Um, mm. How do you think about the, the growing threat of wildfires in the context of this work? Oh, it's, it's absolutely huge. Um, and I really wish we had a whole nother call just to get into that one. Um, but let me just say two things. Number one is it is, a, it is a carbon problem. It is a public health problem. It is a water problem. It is a mudslides problem. I can keep going. It's a habitat problem. I mean, wildfire uh, has about uh, doubled in the Western US. And, and, and as a result of climate change, we've actually even been able to trace the change to the way climate is drying out our forests, making them tinder dry. Um, and, and as I said, it's making them unhealthy and then that opens them up to these explosive wildfires. So we have to change what we're doing because climate change has changed the game for our forests. They're actually out of sync with the, with the climate. And so uh, there, there are two ways we think about it. One is in the forests that we still have, the ones that haven't you know, burned down, for example, like the campfire. It's about using science uh, and climate science particularly to understand how many trees and what type of trees can survive on that landscape into the future. And in many cases, we just can't have as many trees per acre because as I saw one of the questions that came in because of water availability, there isn't as much soil moisture, not as much water availability. And so you actually can't literally have as many trees on some of these uh, acres, um, you know, and have them, uh, you know, be sustained and healthy, as well as even the way that fire passes through the landscape in some of these places, the clumping and spacing of the trees versus if they're overly dense um, has a big uh, impact on how fire vulnerable they are. So in existing forests, it's about creatively using forest, uh, forestry to kind of reshape them and restructure them so that they're more wildfire resilient. But the huge opportunity that Joel spoke about, and that's why we got bipartisan support for this replant act to invest billions of dollars in post-fire reforestation is it's, it's both a tragedy to lose our forest to wildfire, but it's a chance to start over again. And so what we're doing in places like the campfire in California, which was the most, still the most destructive wildfire in California history, and in other places like this all across the West, is to use science to say, okay, instead of looking backwards and trying to replace the forest, how do we look for it forward and say, what kind of forest can survive on this landscape into the future based on the climate changes that are already in motion? And so what it tends to lead you to is a mixture of certain tree species that are there now um, and genetic uh, you know, features of tree species that are there now, combined with things that we want to introduce into the landscape. And really importantly, not you know, non-native species that we're pulling from other countries, but often it's tree species from other parts of the same state that are maybe hotter and drier, for example, um, or uh, places, uh, even the same tree species with slightly different genetic strains of those species, taking species that are from the southern end of the trees range and starting to uh, you know, cultivate seeds and actually replant seedlings from those same ones in the northern edge of the range. So you're actually kind of planting more heat and drought resilient trees uh, farther and farther north as you go forward. And so those kinds of forestry details uh, in the post-fire reforestation can actually help us plant wildfire resilience from the start um, in, these, uh, in these landscapes. And we think that's a really overlooked part of getting to greater wildfire resilience uh, into, the, into the future. I mean, 20% of the West forest um, you know, have, have burned in, in recent decades. And so we're gonna have a lot of this post-fire uh, reforestation to do. And, um, and so it's actually an opportunity to kind of think our way into uh, a smarter way to do it with, with reforestation. Great. That was fantastic, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Um, we, we really look forward to partnering with you and figuring out how we can work together and collaborate. I mean, it's particularly refreshing to hire someone from an organization other than ours talking about bipartisanship. <laughs> you know, sometimes we feel like a lonely voice out on that sometimes. And also 
that your work uh, helps communities that have been disadvantaged is also very heartening to hear. So please feel free to stick on for the next 10 minutes. We're going to go over a couple of things, but uh, if you have to drop off, it's a Saturday afternoon. We understand, but uh, thank you so much. That was fantastic. Great. Thank you so much. Sure. Great. Okay. So what are we, what are we inviting you to do this, this month? Well, first of all, it's action regarding the June conference. Um, and so that's could be helping the people who already registered, make sure that they can attend. Sometimes you fundraise for people, particularly young people, students, et cetera, people who are going for the first time. There's over 400 people who signed up to, uh, schedule appointments. And so if you could start to get those meetings, uh, organized, whether that's going to be actually on the Hill. I think more of them will be interesting or virtual, but beginning to do the work for that also. And then I'll, a little bit later, I'll talk about the worldwide uh, month of action that's happening in coordination also. Also plan your summertime campaign season and the, the different types of grassroots activities you can do over the course of the summer. Uh, on April 6th, our San Mateo County chapter sponsored a nonpartisan environment and climate candidate forum for the top contenders, three Democrats and one Republican, who was working to replace Jackie Speer, who they'd been working with for 10 years, who's retiring from Congress. Uh, the forum was offered by Zoom and registration was handled by Eventbrite. They recruited three local nonprofits to co-sponsor and invite people. They also got 12 local participating organizations to help to publicize it to their membership. Also, they did a lot of reach, outreach to media, which ended up with two newspapers doing uh, stories on the forum, and actually one of the TV stations, uh, KTVU in San Francisco, doing a segment on their news channel. Uh, at the event, there was 145 people in attendance, and over 350 have viewed it since then. There was a brief introduction by one of their student leaders, and then people had submitted questions in advance to the moderator and were able to do some additional questions on Zoom. The chapter leadership feels that sponsoring the forum was important in many ways. It established CCL as a significant entity within the local climate environment community. It established goodwill towards CCL as a provider of an important public service. And more, most importantly, it raised the visibility of CCL with whomever is elected to Congress in November. It also underscored climate change as a critical election issue in our district. And uh, just so you know, if you're, if you're beginning to plan or you are planning an event like that, it took San Mateo about three months to put everything together to do that. And we're going to drop Brad Steele, the primary organizer's contact information in the chat. He is generally offered to answer anybody questions that anybody uh, has about how you might do that. So I just wanted to point to that as an example of one thing you might do uh, and congratulations to San Mateo for getting such great, um, uh, uh, such a great turnout and such a great event. Okay, so I just want to point to a couple things. Uh, one that's coming up, and one that are in process. One is in June on June fourth in West Virginia. They're having the West Virginia Faith Conference, uh, so that's going to get dropped in the chat if you're interested. Our West Virginia volunteers just continue to be absolutely remarkable at trying to find additional ways to support and get uh, Senator Manchin's support. So there's quite a bit of, quite a few faith leaders who are speaking at it and we're very excited about that event. Uh, also in the Senate, the Kigali Amendment is getting growing bipartisan support. That's the amendment that supports the Montreal Protocol. Uh, Senate leadership has given us very specific language they would like us to use if you reach out to your Senator. What they would like you to message is American competitiveness. They don't want you to talk about climate change they want you to focus on American competitiveness. So if you choose to reach out to your senator about the support for the Kekali Amendment, 
please use the phrase American competitiveness somewhere in your messaging. Um, also, Citizens Climate International uh, works on two fronts. One is we now have 134 chapters in 76 countries. So we're, we continue to build and support chapters all over the world. But the other track that Citizens Climate International works on is the UN process. And one of the things that CCI has been doing is working hard to make that process more inclusive, more transparent, get more people in the room, basically. So what happens for a lot of countries is they don't have the wherewithal to put together a delegation to send. So they'll hire someone from another country to represent them. And what we want is, is that every country, for instance, when they're in Bonn this summer, they actually have their own representative. So what we've done is, is we've created a training program along with the Fletcher School of Management at Tufts University. And what we will be doing is training those delegates how to work in that issue. It's a complex process being at those COP events. So a lot of you have been to them, so you know how it is. And sometimes it takes the two weeks of the event just to figure out where to go and what to work on. So what we've, we've done is, is we created a program to train people, to figure out how to work inside the UN process, to learn how to be effective in those things, how to draw additional change to climate change. So I'm really excited about that. And I'm really thrilled that we're partnering with the Fletcher School of Management at Tufts. Okay. So uh, first of all, before I get to the June conference, I want to mention that Neil Chatterjee, the former head of FERC, is our speaker for June. I suspect he knows something about energy transition. So that was a, a big coup, just like this month's speakers, Neil Chatterjee, former head of FERC. Okay, so uh, I'm one of the people who is going to be going to DC. Uh, I have been double boosted along with getting the two uh, original shots. I have my N95 masks. I'm going to be bringing tests with me. I'll be taking a test every day to make sure if I'm exposed, I'm not going to expose anybody else. We also have the room set up with round tables. So there'll be more space in between people than there's ever been at one of our conferences. And so um, I'm just telling you the precautions I'm taking. I'm hoping that everybody else is doing something similar to what I'm doing. Um, I suspect we'll have between five and 600 people uh, in DC and that they'll have, we'll have most of you view, viewing virtually. So there's a few features of the conference I wanna to point to. The first panel that has uh, Nwandi Lawson and Amanda Ripley, they're gonna to talk to us about conflict. And in particular, Amanda Ripley's book about high conflict, she points to a conflict and says, conflict itself is good. But when you get to the point of high conflict, it's not good, it's not healthy. It gets to the point where winning and losing is not enough. It is really about having to humiliate your opponents. So I suspect that we're gonna learn more about the landscape that we're in now and how to be effective in that particular landscape. Also, both Alex Flint and Alex Bosmoski are speaking. Those are two of the cornerstones of the American eco-right. So if that's an area of interest to you, both of them will be speaking on in different sessions. Senator Whitehouse's comments from the reception on Monday night will also be streamed. Uh, given it's not always entirely predictable what time senators will show up at that event, if you miss the exact time at the, at the reception, we will be recording that also. Uh, and then I wanna mention one more <clears throat> speaker, Bill Shireman from In It Together. Mr. Shireman has been working uh, for years to build a coalition of NGOs and organizations that want to bring solutions to the 70% of Americans that don't exist on either fringe. And so he believes there's a coalition there, and I think he's right, where we can start electing people who appeal to the center of American democracy 
rather than just the 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 far left or the far right. And I think that um, his comments will be interesting to you also. So, for the first time ever, we will be doing uh, not just a conference and lobby day, but a worldwide month of action. And people will be doing all kinds of things. So, for instance, the Canadians had their conference last week. Uh, so they were on Parliament Hill last week. We'll report out on the details of that next month because technically that was a May action. So they'll be doing something else. Um, but but all countries are being invited to join in. Now, I know that we look at our own situation and find it to have gotten increasingly difficult over the last several years. One well, half the countries that we work in, they do not have functioning democracies and in many cases are functioning under a corrupt autocrat. So what do they choose to do in the face of that? And it's something that's really, really hard and difficult and hard to figure out your pathway. They choose engagement. So just like you and I will be doing uh, this June, our volunteers in the world will choose to engage on the subject to make project no matter how hard or easy it is. Okay, I want to thank uh, Jad and Joel for joining us again. That was uh, just a fantastic presentation. Thank you all for all you're doing. We'll see you on June 10th with Neil Chatterjee, and I will look forward to seeing whoever's able to make it to D.C. in June. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.